Welcome to the 20 Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam, I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13. Samuel had been the prophet and the judge that had been overseeing Israel. But the people wanted a king. They didn't want God to rule over them. And so God said, Samuel, don't worry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so God led Samuel to anoint a man named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin as king over Israel. Saul became king. And chapter 13, verse 1 says that Saul was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's Saul's son, at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, if you read the story in the book of the Judges, which is what the about 400-year period of Israel's history uh, before King Saul, if you read that, God would raise up these judges who sometimes would literally just judge. They would kind of settle disputes, but often they were people who were deliverers. They would, Israel would enter these cycles of being oppressed because of their sin. And so God would raise up this deliverer to set them free. But there was never once a national unity. For 400 years, Israel stopped being a nation and was really just kind of this loose association of, of ethnic people. Um, and, and one tribe might stand up against their oppressors or two tribes might join together, but never the whole nation until now. You can say, might say, well, wasn't it that, that good? Isn't it good to have a king? Because the king's got the whole people together. I can't prove this, but I think it bears out in the scripture. It's my belief personally that God intended for there to be a king eventually. But that king was to be David. And the people in asking were asking out of time. They were asking too early. So, yes, there were natural good things that were going to happen. Somebody could, somebody could sin. Somebody could um, do whatever they want to do, no matter what God says. And then you could see something that's good and go, see, it's good that, that we're doing this. Uh, yeah, well, okay, so let's say that part of what you did in your rebellion was like brush your teeth. Brushing your teeth is good. That doesn't give uh, excuse for anything else that you do. There's just some things that are going to have a positive outcome no matter how bad overall. I mean, that's one of the things that you'll hear from people who are trying to justify some horrible thing in human history. Well, sure, but they were really good at doing this thing. Yeah, that doesn't excuse what the horrible things that they did otherwise. So the people joined together. Verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in the caves and thickets among the rocks and in the pits and in the cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan 
to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear, and he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's man began to scatter. So Samuel said, Saul, I'm going to come. Saul wants to wait so that there can be sacrifices and prayers made and all of the, the things done to seek God. But his men are fearful, and Samuel hasn't shown up. So he says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. He was not supposed to do that. There was sort of a division in Israel. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. But you couldn't be all three. Only Jesus could be all three. And so he was not supposed to do that. And when Samuel arrived, Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you had not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines were assembling. Oh, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him and they numbered about 600. Saul looked at the consequences of not acting. He said, if I don't act, my enemies could come down on me. My, my men will abandon me. I have to do this thing. He didn't consider what would happen if he did act. Something to think about. Hey, if I don't do this, then I'm exposed. But if you do this thing that God has told you not to do, what's the consequences of that? Oftentimes people don't consider that. Now, somebody might say this seems petty. You know, Saul does one little thing and God says, nope, you're not the king anymore. I have found that these sort of things are often just the last, the last straw. They're the last link in the chain that there's stuff been going on for a long time. And that God said, you know what? You're, you're just going to do your own thing. And that's just not going to work. So Samuel kind of pronounces this situation against him and he leaves. And, and Saul, after doing all this stuff, he's not in a better position. He's got 600 men. He used to have 2,000 with him. That's how many have fled. He has 600 men left with him. And now... You know, the prophet of God has spoken out against him. And it says in verse 16, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah and Benjamin when the Philistines camped at Michmash and raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turns towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shul, another towards Beth Horton or Horan, and the third uh, toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zibium, facing the wilderness. Now, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks and a third of the shekel for far, uh, sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword and spear in his hand, only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So 
<clears throat> the idea was that in their uh, oppression of Israel, there had been also economic oppression where the Philistines had said, we won't let them have blacksmiths. We won't let them uh, have the tools to sharpen their farming equipment. And the reason was, if they have those tools to sharpen their plows, to sharpen their sickles, to sharpen their axes, they could also use them to sharpen swords and spears, and we don't want them to get out of their place. Plus, there's an economic benefit to it. If you have the monopoly on uh, farm equipment maintenance, you will make a pile of cash and keep your enemies limited in their economic development. So that's the situation that Israel finds itself in. And because of it, they don't have weapons. They don't have swords. They don't have spears. They're 600 men. The enemy has thousands of chariots alone, let alone actual foot soldiers. And all of them have swords and spears. Things are not looking good. But it says that in verse 23, a detachment of the Philistines had gone out at the pass at Michmash. And then chapter 14, verse 1 says, One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. And with him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. So he had somebody who was uh, a priest. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. So, so the indication is that they were starting to reestablish the Levitical priesthood. Saul, or sorry, Samuel, was not from the tribe of Levi. But when the priests died, uh, Eli, the high priest, his sons Hophni and Phinehas died because of their sins. But then um, in battle, the indication is that many other priests died. And so you kind of had to wait a little bit until some of these kids grew up to take the place of their fallen relatives. So now he's it's being reestablished. And it says that Jonathan snuck off. Nobody knew he had left. And verse 4, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross... Uh, to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One cliff was called Bozes and the other was called Sene. One cliff stood to the north of Michmash and the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. So what Jonathan is saying, look, we're in a bad situation. We used to have 2,000 men under my father, and then I had a 1,000 men, and now there's about 600 men total, and instead of being kind of spread out in the defensive positions, we're all gathered together in one position, and everybody's freaked out, and there's no will to fight left, and things seem bad. So he says, if God is with us, does it matter if we have 600 men or 6,000 or just one person? He said, things are bad. So we will step out and see what God will do. Because with the Lord, nothing's impossible. So verse 8, come on, and then we will cross over toward them and let us see. Uh, and if, uh, let them see us. Verse 9, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, we will stay where we are and we will not go to them. But if they say, come up, we'll climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. 
And that was something you see a lot um, in these ancient cultures was they had a big emphasis on signs to confirm. Um, I am personally a little hesitant on that. You know, it's a 50-50 thing. Hey, if they say, come on up, we'll go up. But if they say, wait till we come down, we're not coming down. So it's a 50-50 chance. What if he had said the other thing? Or what if they, you know, I'm just going to say that's what they believed. And they operated in that understanding. So they both showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, the Philistines said, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In their, that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Now, somebody would say, that seems unlikely. Only one sword between them, Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they don't even have the high ground. They have to go up. That's a bad military situation. I, don't, I even know that, and I'm not a military guy. Uh, the, other, the other day, I saw a photo of a gun, and I am not a, somebody who knows about guns. I don't own guns. I, I, I rarely have fired one, you know. Um, but I could see that it was a bad design. Like, it was so bad that even I could tell it was a bad design, and I... I screenshotted it, texted it to a friend of mine who is very knowledgeable about guns. And I said, hey, um, you know that I'm not a gun guy and you know that uh, I don't have the knowledge that you have in your, your pinky, but I can tell this is a bad design. He said, yeah, this is, this is a terrible design. It's the same thing. I'm not a military guy. I'm not an expert, but I can tell you that the high ground is important and that two against all of those guys is not good odds. This shouldn't have happened. Yet with God, Nothing is impossible. Verse 15 says, Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outpost and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic set by God. And Saul's lookouts in Gibeah, uh, in Benjamin, saw the army melting away in all directions. So basically, this little battle happens, but it causes a panic in the, in the larger army, so they start to flee, thinking that there's some hidden Israelite army that we didn't know about, and they were hiding in the hills, they were hiding in holes, and now they've come out, and they are routing us, so everybody's fleeing, and the lookout see this, and Saul, verse 17, said to the men who were with him, muster the forces, see who is left with us, and when they did, they saw that it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God, at that time it was with the Israelites, and while Saul was talking to the priests, tumult of the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And then Saul and his men assembled and went into battle. And they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and gone up to them with their camp went over to the Israelites and with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the Israelites had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined in the battle in hot pursuit. So on the day the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved beyond Beth-Avon. So what's happening here is human nature. There was somebody, in this case Jonathan and his armor bearer, who full of faith in God stood up and took bold action. Then Saul, his father, sees that stuff is going on, but instead of getting into action right away, he kind of dithers and he says, uh, let's get the Ark of the Covenant, um, let's, let's pause here, um, 
And then he realizes, nope, this is the moment to act. So finally he gets it together. They, they get who they have with them, and then they go into action. And as they go into action, the people who had been traitors, basically, and they were like, hey, we, you know, they're bandwagon fans. Um, you know, one, one of my sons just loves to root for whatever team is winning, right? And that's what they were doing. They were over just, uh, hey, it looks like the, uh, the Philistines are going to win. Hey, we weren't with them. We liked you guys. We loved it when you oppressed us. So we are going to go be with you guys. Oh, wait, you're losing now. Hey, just kidding. We were Israel. Yay, Israel. We were with you the whole time. And then the people in Ephraim who were in the area, but they weren't going to stand and be counted until they see that the battle is turning and then they come out. I'll say this you know what? At least they got there. They might not have been there at the start, but at least they came out. So I'm not interested in finding a modern example to rip on. But I'll say this. We live in a time where Christianity in America seems to be on the decline. Churches are shrinking. Pastors are quitting. The few of us who stand need to stand firm and stand full of faith. Now, I always want to be careful because the battle language is metaphorical. You know, Jesus told Peter, put away his sword. We're not looking to start a revolution, a political action. We're we're here for the spiritual salvation of people, not political power of a nation. That being said, it's easy to get discouraged and look and say, hey, we used to have this many, and now we have this many. This used to be happening, and now this is happening. We have to just know that God is still at work, and that one or two people stepping forward in faith can trigger something huge. And we need to be praying and seeking and asking God so that when the moment comes, we're not dithering like Saul, but we step into action. My parents grew up in a revival And one of the stories I heard that was so interesting to me was, uh, he just died actually recently, but this guy, Tom Stipe, and he produced, uh, he was a record producer, and he produced music for a lot of the early, early Christian bands. So you can either thank him or hate him, depending on how you feel about Christian music. But he was also a pastor. And one night, at like, you know, middle of the night, he gets a phone call. And this is in the late 70s. He gets a phone call and it's one of the bands that he had produced and they were in England. And that's why it was the middle of the night because for them, they had forgotten there's a time change. And so they called him and they said, hey man, we're playing music here. People are coming to faith. You need to bring more bands over. Stuff's happening. So Tom gets some of the bands and they get plane tickets and they go fly to England and they just begin to minister. When I moved to England, I heard this story and a question that I had was what happened to those people? Because the church in you think things in America are bad the, you know, 20 years ago, the church in England was, you know, 10 times worse off than we are in America, maybe even 50 times worse off. So I asked people whenever this kind of thing would come up, I'd say, what happened? And consistently the story that I got was that yes, people were responding to Jesus, but the church the older, the leaders, the Sauls, they dithered. They didn't receive them. They, they, they said, you can't come yet. We don't want you. We want you to clean up. We want you to, 
to uh, become culturally like us. We don't want what you're doing. If God moves in our day, like he was moving in, in, in England in the late 70s, will we be ready to accept it and move and act? Or are we going to just stand like Saul with the priest going, hey, let's figure this stuff out? I hope we're ready to move and act because God is still working and still moving. And there's no end to his work. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. New episodes are released on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. Video versions are available on our Facebook page. Faith on Hill is a church that gathers every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. And then we meet throughout the week in small groups. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We'll see you next time for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.